the letter of Second John. Second John. Well, just to give you a little roadmap going forward, we're going to do this sermon on Second John, one sermon on Third John next week, and then um, we'll have a guest preacher coming the week after that. And then the decision has been made. We are going to jump into the Old Testament, and we're going to go to the book of First Samuel. It'll be completely new and different uh, type of letter or type of uh, uh, writing in the in the Bible. One of the things I wanted to announce is when we do begin that um, book of First Samuel, well, the church is purchasing these. Um, they're called scripture journals. The the Crossway is putting them out, and this is from First through Third John. But basically, what it has is the the text of scripture on the left. And then lines on the right so you can journal and take notes. And so the, the church is going to purchase all of those um, for First Samuel. Well, actually, it's First and Second Samuel combined together in a journal. Um, so those will be provided for anybody who wants one. We'll have them pretty soon here. And um, they can be used in your own personal you know, study time. Or they can also be used as sermon notes, uh, taking your sermon notes in, in, the, in the worship service. So we'll let you know when they come in and, and you can grab one uh, for yourself. So 2 John is where we're at this morning. We're going to be, uh, like I said, reading the entirety of the letter. Um, it's relatively short, and 3 John is, is uh, about the same in length as well. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Second John, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard it from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. And whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I, come to you, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we finished our study of 1 John. And I don't know if you knew this, but he wrote two more letters. And there's really no other place in the Bible where you get three letters consecutively from the same person with the same title. 
They're short, these, these second and third John, and they seem to be written to particular churches or people, as opposed to first John, which was probably more written more generally to several different churches and congregations. These are a bit more specific. They're a bit more, uh, they're written to, uh, it calls the elect lady and her children. Now you're probably wondering, the elect lady, what, is he writing to a woman here? Now, this is just a way of describing the church. This chosen lady, right? We're called, the church is called the bride of Christ many times. So the lady and her children, it's a fond term he's using for the church, the specific church. And he calls himself a Presbyterian, right? He calls himself the elder, right? The elder to the elect lady. We know this is John, this is the way he speaks, using a lot of the same terms. So like I said, these are short letters. Um, they're written specifically, and they're called 2nd and 3rd John. We'll be looking all of 2nd all of John today. But as we do this, I don't want to skip over the fact that John wrote multiple letters to the young believers he really cared about. And more than anywhere else in all of the New Testament, we hear the Christian life described as a walk. A walk. And so 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are a strong reminder to us all that our commitment to each other is not a one-and-done thing. Loving one another means we will continually reach out, pursue, give guidance and counsel and exhort, enter into hard discussions, warn and rebuke to show the love of Christ to one another. So, so don't skip over the fact that he has written multiple letters to these churches. And that is what the walk of faith looks like. Right? We're, we're, we're committing to walk alongside one another and enter into these discussions. And it's not just a one and done. And we do use, if you, if you talk to many, if you're a new Christian, maybe you realize we, we use the word walk a lot. How's your walk with Christ? Right? That's a common lingo, Christianese, that we use. Why do we use the word walk? Well, for one, it's biblical. Right? We see it mentioned here several times in, in 2 John and 3 John. And it's used as a metaphor for our lifelong pattern of discipleship after Christ. But it's also a reminder that the Christian life has many ordinary, uneventful, sometimes difficult, constant, repetitive steps to it. How many of you guys actually have a watch that keeps track of all the steps you take throughout the day? Anybody? Anybody here? I know know some of you do that. Um, And you get really excited when you hit certain milestones, right? 10,000, 15,000. Um, but those steps, you're not actually counting them. The watch is keeping count, and you're doing it all throughout the day. It's, a, it's, a, it's like a chore to get us from point A to point B. And sometimes a walk can be magnificently beautiful, depending on where we're walking. The beach, um, Hawaii. Van Runnels just got back from Hawaii. She can talk about the walk she went on. A garden, watching a beautiful sunset. Those are walks you remember. But most of the time, walking is a normal chore that gets us from one place to the other. Probably one of the most difficult times I ever had walking was out in California when we used to live out there when I was in seminary, and I got stung by a stingray at the beach. I stepped on it, like right in the bottom of my foot, and man, it hurt. And I had to put my uh, foot in hot water for about three hours, because that's the only thing that kills the pain. But anyways, we had chosen that day to go down to San Diego uh, to walk downtown because there was this big conference going on where people dress up in costumes. It's called a Comic-Con. And we wanted to just see what was going on down there. But we were walking for miles, and I had to hobble along with my foot hurting, aching. 
as uh, I was still dealing with the pain from that stingray. So there I am, limping, limping along. I struggled to keep up with everyone, but I had a family nearby who helped me, who watched after me, and made sure I was okay as they were walking alongside me. And that's what got me through that day, even though I probably could have used uh, some sort of a wheelchair. would have been nice. First, second, and third John are a reminder that we don't walk alone. In fact, we can't walk alone as believers, or we will fall and fail too easily, and will fall into the trap of our own sin. So the main point of Second John is this, that because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because it's true, we must watch our walk, we must watch for deceivers, and watch Jesus. Those are the three main ideas that we're going to look at this morning. Watch our walk, watch for deceivers, and watch Jesus. Look at verse 4 again. He says, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. Now here, I I don't believe he's saying that only a very small amount, just some of the church was walking in the truth. I I think he's saying he he occasioned to talk to or, or meet up with or see those who were walking in the truth from the entire church. And that that brought joy to his heart. But again, we, we see this, this metaphor, walking in the truth. I'm reminded of Paul's words to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 16. He says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you'll save both yourself and your hearers. The first idea that we see is that we're to walk in the truth. That's what, Paul, that's what John says here in verse 4, that we, he saw these children walking in the truth. And the first thing we realize is that he's reminding us of of this truth of the gospel. There are gospel truths laced throughout 2 John, especially in the greeting and in the salutation part, verses 1 through 3. Look at what he calls them. The elder to the elect lady. Do you know what that word elect means? Sometimes we get hung up on that and think about all the the doctrines we have a hard time understanding, like predestination. But elect means chosen, that we're chosen by God. I'm reminded of of Jesus' words in John 15. He says, you did not choose me, talking to the disciples. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Brothers and sisters, your Christian walk does not ultimately or merely depend upon your faith or your choosing God. Did you make a choice to follow Christ? Yes, if you're a believer. But did God choose you before you ever started following him? Yes. Those two things can both be true. And so what that gives us, why that's an important thing to remember, why he reminds them that they're elect and they're chosen is that there is divine activity and strength previous to your walk. Previous to your choice, there is divine work in you and throughout your walk. So previous to your walk and throughout your walk, there is divine strength and power and choosing. And that should, that should encourage us. Because if it was ultimately God's work, then it's ultimately God's work that's going to get you through and hang, you, and, and hang on to you and grip you. 
if it's just us, if it's just our faith, if it's just our choosing, how many bad days will you have and then consider maybe it was all vapor and not real? We are chosen. We are elect, he calls us, the elect lady and her children. But look what also he says, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. He says, whom I love in truth and all of those who know the truth love you. That we are loved. And it's true that God loves you, but he regularly shows that love to you through believers who tangibly love us and bear with us. And so it's in the church context that we are loved by God. When someone gives you a meal, when someone asks how they can pray for you, when someone helps you move, this is the way God loves you and shows his love through believers. And so John's reminding them that that he loves them and all who know them love them as well. But notice the word truth in all of these verses, that truth is really... um, Continually repeated in these verses. He says, verse 2, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Truth is a big deal for the believer. Truth is a big deal for us. That centering our lives on what is true is of utmost importance to the believer in Christ. So if you're a believer, you should be concerned about whether or not the Bible is true, whether it's reliable, whether it's trustworthy whether Jesus really did rise again from the dead, whether or not he really was born of a virgin. These are not just just, um, things we can just think are not that true or not that helpful or take or leave kind of ideas. No, it all has to be true or none of it is really that important. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if, Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. See, Paul knew above everybody else that if Christ was not raised, all of, all of what we're doing today doesn't matter. It matters whether or not he was truly raised from the dead. And all the witnesses that we have point to the fact that the tomb is empty. And that matters Truth matters for the believer. Truth matters. And look what else gospel truths were given. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. Look at verse 3. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and in love. He is just pouring these gospel truths upon us again. This is like a, a greeting, but it's a benediction, really. That for the believer, we have grace. And what is grace? It's unearned favor it's 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 receiving something that you never earned that you couldn't have merited and mercy what is mercy mercy is not getting something you do deserve right god's justice and punishment for our sin is what we ultimately deserve but he doesn't give that to us that's merciful we have grace we have mercy and ultimately we have peace with god that's that was if you understand grace and mercy you will have peace And you will live in peace because you have peace with God. It reminds me of the benediction from Numbers 6 that we often hear, that the the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lord, lift up his countenance, which is just his face again, and give you 
shalom, peace. That's the great hope of all believers in God, that we would have peace with him. So we're to walk in truth. We're also to walk in love. Look at verse 5 and 6. And now I ask you, dear lady, that's the church again, not as though I were writing uh, you a new commandment, but the one that we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. So what he's saying here is that truth leads to love. Truth leads to love. We're to love one another. Um, When he says, not as though I was writing to you a new commandment, but an old one, the one we've had from the beginning. He, that's taken right out of 1 John chapter 2, which we've studied before. 1 John chapter 2, 7 through 11, he says, Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you've heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light's already shining. That whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. But whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. What John is pointing us back to is Jesus' great commandment, that you are to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This emphasis on, on loving, loving others. I'm going to read a, a short uh, article from... Uh, author named Timothy Simpson, and he makes the claim here that, that the Great Commission right, to go out and, and spread the gospel is hindered when the Great Commandment to love our neighbors is disregarded. Right? The Great Commission is hindered when we avoid the Great Commandment to love God and love neighbor. He says, to be faithful witnesses to Christ, we must embrace the supreme Christian ethic, love. It's easy to lose sight of the sacrificial love demanded of Christians, even to think it's not possible in the real world. But in Christ, we have encountered a greater reality that supersedes the status quo. Jesus has come and raised up a people for his own possession. And when you entrust yourself to Jesus, you become attached to his people. Our neighbors, those are unbelievers, must recognize our unyielding commitment to one another, even when there's tension among us. Our cultural allegiances must take a back seat to our commitment to the cross and to the church. Our neighbors neighbors will not recognize us as Christians if our love hinges on personal and social ambition. So that's that's the first thing we need to say is that uh, we're committed to truth, right? You can't have um, real effectiveness with the gospel if you don't stand on truth. You don't say what is true. But if all you are and if all you teach is truth and you live hating one another, uh, always in constant quarreling and fighting as believers, then no one's going to really truly believe the gospel. No one's going to be convinced of that because we're mirroring what we see in the world. And brothers and sisters, it it pains me to say that a lot of times what I'm seeing right now is a lot of division, not only in, in our culture, but in the church. And I think where that stems from is, a, is, is getting our eyes off of the most important thing, which is the gospel. Getting our focus on, on tangential issues that may be important, but not remaining focused on what Jesus is telling us to be focused on, which is his message, 
which is, which is him himself. Timothy Simpson continues, he says, if the Great Commission is the goal, we have, the, we have to confront the obstacles that keep people from hearing the gospel. We don't need to recreate church. We need to live out the church's calling in light of what Jesus has done. The world will know we are Christians supremely by our love. He says, a friend recently told me that he overheard close friends using racial slurs in conversation. And he knew he should do something. These were fellow believers. But he didn't know what. He didn't know what he should do. And I encouraged him to pray for humility, to start a conversation with one person, speak the truth in love, and leave the results to God. While the task was difficult, my friend was responsible for loving his friend by sharing the truth. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, once said that true love is measured by the degree to which one loving is willing to subject himself to crosses and losses, to suffering and self-denials. With love comes responsibility, and that responsibility is grounded in truth. What disturbs and disillusions those on the outside of the church is the imbalance of truth and love, and they often see it in our midst. I once uh, recently heard someone say, um, uh, only going to someone with love and never giving them truth is like trying to do surgery on someone with, with a wet fish. That's all you have is a wet fish is your tool. But going to someone with just truth and no love, they said, is like going into surgery with only a hammer and just hammering and trying to do surgery that way. We don't want to do that either, either way. We don't want to be only loving with zero truth, and we don't want to be all truth with zero love. We want to model and walk in both. He says, truth people tend to exert power over others with their truth. They'd rather lecture than listen. But love people, on the other hand, are prone to excuse hypocrisy. So naturally, these different proclivities spark conflict between people scarred by sin. But as a family, the local church ought not merely celebrate the absence of conflict. Right? If we're a church and there's zero conflict ever, that uh, scares me a little bit. If there's zero conflict. Because what that means is ultimately we don't have relationship. We don't really know each other. And we're not spending time with each other. If we're spending time with each other and loving each other in relationship, there's going to be friction. There's going to be conflict. And the point is not to avoid conflict. But the point is to meet one another in love and truth and reconcile and repent and confess. That's what biblical relationships look like. We must pursue the process of working through conflict together. Our hope is that both love and truth will prevail because of the gospel's invincible power that Timothy Simpson writes. So truth and love. We should walk in truth and love. The second major idea he's telling us in 2 John is that we should watch for deceivers. Watch for deceivers. Look at verses 7 through 11. He says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. But whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So he calls these people deceivers. He's been talking about them all throughout 1 John. 
These are people who were a part of the church, broke away from the church because they were teaching that Jesus did not, he wasn't really the Son of God. He didn't really come in the flesh. And, he was, and they are dividing the people. They're deceiving the people. He calls them the spirit of the Antichrist, right. literally uh, against Christ. And you know, false teachers are appealing. That's really literally what it means to deceive, to, to sort of be appealing and trick. John Moffat writes, false teachers will say all the right words to convince the weak that they're wise and full of truth. And once they have them, they change the gospel from faith to works. They change the gospel from faith alone to works. And they convince the weak that they're full of of truth. You see, a little truth can serve a massive lie. And that's often what these teachers were doing. They They were combining a little truth here and there, but they were ultimately, the, big, the massive lie was saying that Jesus did not come in the flesh. Jesus warned us of these false teachers. He says in Matthew seven fifteen, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So how do we spot a false teacher? How do you spot these teachers? Well, the first thing to realize is that false teachers have a following. They have many followers. They draw a crowd. So if you're on Facebook and you see a person's got you know, 10,000 followers, 100,000 followers, doesn't necessarily mean what they're teaching is good. So often they do have a lot of followers. They have a movement and they draw a crowd. And today, false teachers are less likely to make themselves popular within a church, a physical um, church. Sometimes that happens. But more likely, they gain traction online. Or we know that's where a lot of people interact today. The second one is really, um, really important, and that false teachers lack accountability. Almost always, the person who is a false teacher who is in error and is drawing a movement to themselves lacks real accountability. People to hold them accountable. People to say, hey, I don't think that's exactly right with your teaching. They don't let anyone have authority over them. That's what you see often in cults, where you have one leader at the top, and no one to to address them. Thirdly, false teachers provide new insight. They have discovered something that no one else has. Something new, something brand new. It's going to change your life in 10 steps. That is often the mark of a false teacher. Someone who says, "Um, you've never heard this before, and this is amazing truth. Be wary if you hear that. And lastly, false teachers are most effective when they successfully divide the church. Often their goal is to split and divide the church. And often they're teaching something that is, and they're trying to get people attracted to something that has nothing to do with the gospel. It's some other side attraction, some other issue. Their goal is to divide the church. So if you see someone coming into the body who's, who's trying to get us off track, often that's a mark of a false teacher. But you know the best way to spot a counterfeit is to know the original. Right? The best way to, to spot a counterfeit is to know what the original looks like. And so the best way to know if there's a false teacher out there is to know your Bible, is to know uh, good theology and to be studying God's word, to know uh, what you believe and why you believe it. Um, there's a the book we've talked about. We've actually did a study on it a few years ago, um, 
called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, and the author is Nabil Qureshi, um, and he died several years back. Of um, He had stomach cancer, and he uh, grew up Muslim, and he was a part of a Muslim family that really ingrained the Quran in him. From when he was five years old, he could, uh, he could read the entire Quran in Arabic, and he memorized like the last uh, four or five um, books of the Quran, and uh, because it was a part of their prayers. And I've got to thank Steve Runnelson on a video of one of Nabil's, um, one of his talks that he gave. And he's actually, he was actually from this area. He went to EV, uh, EVMS and uh, eventually went on and um, went to med school and then also went to, got his doctorate from Oxford. But he's a great apologist. He only lived to about 34. Um, but he talked about growing up as this, um, this really serious Muslim. Uh, in America, and he would talk about how he would challenge other Christians around him, other of his peers as he was growing up. And nine times out of ten, that supposed Christian wouldn't have an answer for basic questions about about Christianity. Right? He would ask him, "Show you know, show me you know." One one girl, uh, he says this one day, came up to him. Her name was Betsy. And she, she shared her faith. He, he said, often people wouldn't share their faith. They knew I was a Muslim, but they didn't share their faith with me. And that's either because they don't believe it themselves or they don't care that I'm going to go to hell if I don't believe it. So one of those two things is true. They don't care or they don't believe it themselves or they don't care about me. But anyways, this one uh, girl, Betsy, shared her faith with him. And he was actually surprised that anybody wanted to share the faith with him. And, and she said, uh, Nabil, do you, do you know Jesus? And kind of being a smart out, he returned the question back on her and said, do you know Jesus? And he began to question her because he actually knew the Bible really well. And he challenged her, do you, do you know, where, is there any place where he actually cl- truly claimed to be God? Uh, do you know uh, that the Bible is not reliable? That's what he would tell her. Um, do you, uh, you know the Trinity doesn't make sense? And so he would challenge her, and, and no Christian of his age really knew how to answer him because no Christians were really trained or, or taught anything. Uh, and it wasn't until he got to college that he actually met a former atheist who was a Christian, it was a roommate of his, who actually knew what he believed and why he believed it and challenged Nabil on lots of issues and actually showed him that the Bible is reliable and trustworthy and it's not corrupted and that the Trinity can be explained as we look at Scripture and see it there, although there are mysterious aspects, and that Jesus did claim to be God and he was, he was finally shaken. Right? His, his faith in Islam was shaken. Um, but I'm, I'm scared to think that many of our people who claim they're Christians don't actually know what they believe or why they believe it. And so the best way to spot error is to know the original and to know what you believe and why you believe it. And so when we have these false teachers come into the church, what are we called to do? Look at verse 8. Watch yourselves. Watch yourself so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Again, 1 Timothy 4.16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. And I, it's interesting that he says what we have worked for, so that you may not lose what we collectively have worked for. It's a reminder that your growth in grace is a corporate project. You do it together with other believers in church. That's how you grow in grace. 
And no one in Christ grows alone. But being a church member means you'll walk with others through this broken world, through the brokenness of, their own, of your own life and the brokenness in other people's lives. And he says that so you may win a full reward. And what does he mean by uh, reward in verse 8? What kind of reward are we promised? Wasn't well, it the Lord himself? From Philippians 3, verse 8, Paul says that the ultimate desire of his heart is that is the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That that is the reward we're promised, is to know him. But then we're given this warning as well. He says, if anyone comes, in verses 10 and 11, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So that can be troubling if we're thinking about, um, can we not have unbelievers over for dinner, right? That becomes the practical question. Are we not allowed to have people uh, who don't believe the way we do uh, over to our house? Well, before we go to that question, you need to understand, we need to understand hospitality in the first century, what it meant to actually have someone over to your house. And it's not the same thing as, as we think about it today. Um, uh, Colin Cruz writes, Hospitality might be defined as the process by means of which an outsider's status is changed from a stranger to a guest. Hospitality, then, is something a person provides not for family or friends, but for strangers. They need such hospitality. Otherwise, they will be treated as non-human because they are potentially a threat to the community. So you see, back in those days, you didn't have this community of brotherhood, this idea that everybody is welcomed you know, um, we live in America, so you're just having another American citizen over to your house, and, and, and there's this sense of welcome and brotherhood in the day and age that we live right now, but not back then, right? People from outside the community were deemed a threat, and you weren't just going to immediately have them over to your house or welcome them in as a guest, because if you did, you are approving of them, right? You're saying that uh, this person, I'm giving this person the thumbs up, right? I'm giving them a good reference, He says, strangers had no standing in law or custom, and therefore they needed a patron in the community they were visiting. There was no universal brotherhood in the ancient Mediterranean world. So guests and hosts were to observe certain rules. Guests were not to, number one, insult their hosts or show any kind of hostility or rivalry, or usurp the role of their host in any way. Or three, refuse what was offered, especially food. And then hosts, on the other hand, were not to insult their guests or make any show of hostility or rivalry. They were not to neglect to protect their guests' honor. And number three, hosts were not to fail to show concern for the needs of their guests. And so hospitality was not reciprocated between individuals, but it was reciprocated between communities. And it was the stranger's own community to which they were obliged to sing the praises of their hosts if they had been treated well. So you see, it wasn't just this idea of having this person over for dinner. It was an affirmation of this person and everything they're about. And it's saying to their community where they came from that we approve of this this person. So instead of thinking it as, I can't have someone over to my house who's not a believer, think of it, we would never have an unbeliever or someone who's teaching error to teach from this pulpit. Right? Because remember, they met in houses. The churches were often in houses. So allowing an outsider, this false teacher, to come into the house was essentially giving them a platform and giving them authority 
uh, over that over that church. Yeah, we recently, uh, well, actually, it was two or three years ago, on a really cold winter night, we had some visitors to our house around seven o'clock at night, and it was two young women, and they were Mormon missionaries. And I had some, I had a pastor friend of mine over, and it was freezing cold out there, and they were just sitting there and wanted, or outside on our porch talking. I was like, I just invited them in because like it's freezing cold, and um, and I didn't want them, you know, shivering. And we set them down on the couch, and we didn't. We didn't try to ultimately convert them because I don't know if you about missionaries. They, they have can lines that they use, and, and you often won't get very far. But we, we gave them com- common courtesy and decency uh, to come in. And um, that's, not, that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about someone who's a known divider, who comes into the, the community, and you're welcoming them, and you're affirming everything that they are about as a guest in your house. And like I said, it's often, he could be referring to the very church activities because churches met in homes. So we're to avoid false teachers. We're to watch for deceivers. But lastly, we're to watch Christ. We're to look to Christ ultimately as we walk. And look how he's describing these, these false teachers. And this is where I'm, I'm getting this idea. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. But whoever abides in the teaching of Christ has both the Father and the Son. Do you see where it all hinges? What all this turns on is Christ himself. Do you have the teaching of Christ or not? John is telling us to keep our eyes on Jesus. Make the gospel your central focus. If you become sidelined by any other issue, as important as it might be, we'll all be in danger of false teachers. And look at those, those words where he says, don't go on and leave the teaching of Christ. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, it's like this vision of a, of a group of people hiking together and one person leaves the group right, and goes on ahead and gets into danger because they're not with the group anymore. None of us are to go on and leave Christ behind or leave the gospel behind. We don't graduate from the gospel, but we stay with God's people and his teaching. And the, the other reason why we're to watch Christ is because nobody's going to walk perfectly. And often our walk is going to fail and we're going to stumble. And we need Christ. We need the Savior of the world who walked perfectly in your place. The walk of truth and love is perfected in Christ, that he actually walked perfectly every day of his life. It's a great quote by John Stott and the cross of Christ, and it's this great description of what the gospel is. He says, The essence of sin is man submitting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. But God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone. God accepts penalties that belong to man alone. We rebelled against God. He took on our sin in our place. He died in our place, and he lived in our place too. And this is all seen perfectly in how Jesus lived. As I close, let me end with this quote by Eric Raymond. He says, when Jesus walked on the water, he walked where only God could walk. In Job 9, we read of God treading upon the waves of the sea, 
Only God, only Jesus could walk on the water. Further, in these Gospels, we read of Jesus walking the lonely walk to the cross. And as, as he was bearing the cross, he was bearing my shame. He drank dry the eternal vat of divine wrath that was to be poured out on my head. And in his death, he hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. His walk, his incarnation, his entire ministry was redemptive, meaning it achieved salvation. That he lived and he died for a sinner like me, and only Jesus could make that walk. Only he could walk there. He is the only one who's eligible and willing to be my substitute. So friends, how are we to walk? We walk as Christ did, not only as our example, but as the one who did it perfectly for us in our place. So watch your walk, watch for deceivers, and watch Christ. Keep your eyes on Christ. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to do this? Would you remind us again and again, all throughout this week, of these words of 2 John, that we have grace and mercy and peace in Christ Jesus. And without him, we won't be able to walk straight. We'll be limping along. And as we limp, you've given us the church. You've given us those to remind us of of Jesus and his power and his perfect righteousness in our place, who we need day by day. Be with us, Father, as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.